And you'll see on the, uh, on the sermon outline sheet, you'll see it says, better to travel, hopefully, than to arrive. Have you heard that saying before? It's a quotation from a collection of essays by Robert Louis Stevenson. Is it true in your experience it's better to travel hopefully than to arrive? I have to say that as life goes on, I've come to the conclusion that Robert Louis Stevenson never travelled anywhere with small children. (laughs) Are we nearly there yet? That's the inevitable question you will sometimes hear, even before you turn the very first corner of the journey. No, we're not nearly there yet. We've got hours to go. Please stop asking. But despite the frustration of that question, it strikes me that small children have a point. Arriving is the whole point of travelling and is usually far more satisfying than the journey itself. And that is certainly true of the Christian life. We can be very clear, and we need to be very clear, it will be far better to arrive in the new heavens and the new earth, however hopefully we travel now in this age and this life, the arrival will far surpass it. So look back at... Uh, verse 2 in chapter 3. We heard this last week when Chris was helping us revel in our identity as children of God from verses 1 to 3. Dear friends, he says in verse 2, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. We're not there yet. But we know, he continues, that when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. What a wonderful arrival that will be. But it's then, it's not now. Now, if you've been with us over the previous weeks, you may remember we're into the main part of this letter which began with the clear and abrupt command in chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world. And we saw a couple of weeks ago that one of the things that makes not loving the world hard is the presence of antichrists, false teachers in the church. But here now is a further thing that makes it hard not to love the world. And it's this. Faithful, authentic, apostolic Christianity, which John is calling his readers to stick with, faithful, authentic, apostolic Christianity doesn't look all that impressive here and now. So it's like when the circus comes to town. We'll be coming to Hampstead Heath in a week or two, I think. On the road, on the journey, it's just a convoy of plain white lorries. Nothing very impressive. You might not even notice them on the motorway. But when they arrive, the lorries get unpacked and suddenly there's a huge spectacle of entertainment and joy and sparkle. But on the journey, you can't see that. And the problem for Christians is that this creates an environment where someone comes and says to you, hey, look, are you satisfied with your Christian life? You you know, are you as you would like to be in your life as a Christian? Well, the faithful Christian will always say, well, no, I'm not satisfied because I am not yet what I will be. I haven't arrived. 
But the thing is, that's where the danger comes. Because if someone says, well, do you know what? You can have all that now. You can expect to be healed right here, right now. You can expect a life free of financial worry and stress. You can expect all your promises to disappear. You just need to move on from plain, vanilla, biblical Christianity. Well, when you hear that kind of offer, in the light of the fact that you're just aware that you're not there yet, and you're still struggling with sin, and you're longing for that to change, well, then you're going to start feeling tempted. So that's why this letter is here, as we've seen, to reassure true believers that they already have everything they need in Christ. Yeah, they're not there yet. We're not yet there. There's still progress to make in the Christian life. But in Christ, we have all we need. That is the message of this letter. It's to reassure true believers. It's also to expose false teachers and false teaching. Those who are trying to lead true believers astray, to lead them, in fact, just to love the world, like the rest of the world loves the world, by simply wanting the best possible life now, rather than waiting for what will come when Jesus returns. And so John continues in these verses that we have in front of us, verses 4 to 10. And last time we met the idea of us being children of God, and now he contrasts children of God with children of the devil. Now I have to warn you, if you've not realised already, John, who wrote this letter, he's not a kind of logician, a logic expert. He's not a philosopher. I heard this week someone describe him as a choreographer. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that rather than doing sort of logical argument, this is true, and therefore this is also true, and therefore you must do that, that's not really how he writes. What he does is he takes themes and he kind of dances with them. And he looks at them over and over again from different angles. So he says it one way, then he says it another way, then he looks at it from a different point of view. I'm not going to start dancing. I don't do that. But John does. And each time he brings out something slightly different. And that's true to some extent over the letter as a whole, but it's true even within these few verses that we have before us. He looks at things from different angles. So we can't really go through it verse by verse. That doesn't really work. What we have to try and do is see the, take a step back and see the themes as a whole. So bear with me. I know it's sometimes harder to follow as a result. So you really need to bear with me and listen So how we're going through this. The first big theme in these verses is this. The two families, children of God and children of the devil. Now that's primarily from the end of these verses, verses 9 and 10. Can you see the two types of family that he says here? This is how you know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. But before we get into what that is, it's worth taking a step back and realise he is saying, point is, You are either one or the other. There are two families in the world and only two families. Now, you can move from one to the other, that's not the issue, but there is a kind of binary choice between them. Instinctively, we prefer the idea of a spectrum, don't we? You know, surely, you know, when it comes to God... We're on a kind of sliding scale, we like to think. You know, some of us are up here, and particularly godly and spiritual, and others are sort of down there. Most of us, we like to think we're somewhere in the middle. 
On the good day, you know, I behave like a child of God. On a bad day, it's the other type of child. But John says, no, you're either one or the other, a child of God or a child of the devil. Isn't that a bit exclusive, we think? Isn't that a bit intolerant? Maybe you can imagine a non-Christian friend or colleague levelling that kind of accusation at you. They might say, well, what about our mutual friend, you know, Sarah or whatever? You know, she's not a Christian, but she helps at the homeless night shelter. And she's always thinking of others. And she's just a lovely person. You're not really saying she's a child of the devil, are you? Just because she doesn't believe in Jesus. But the thing is, that would only be a fair argument if those that the Bible calls children of God could boast of something in themselves that made them deserve to be children of God. You see, it's not like that, is it? It's all grace from start to finish. That's why back in verse 1, John takes that moment to revel in the Father's love that he's lavished on his children. This is not what we deserve. That's the point. Children of God have nothing to boast in except the blood of Jesus at the cross. What's the alternative to that? The alternative is that we're all on a spectrum from good to evil. And in order to believe that you, are, that you personally are going to heaven, you have to end up believing that somehow you are actually better than some other people who won't be there. But it's actually, isn't that incredibly arrogant? To think, well, you know, actually, yeah, yeah, I am. I am better. Look at my performance. And I'm better than them. No, that, that sounds like arrogance to me. John says, no, there are children of God and there are children of the devil. Those who are children of God are his children, not because they have performed better. They are children of God because of the love that he has lavished on them. So the question then follows, which is which? Who are the children of God? Who are the children of the devil? As we deal with this sense of not yet being at the destination, being imperfect, longing for something better, how do you tell who the children of God are And who the children of the devil are. That's what we see next. The two family traits, righteousness and sin. This is how you spot the difference, says John. He says it in a number of different ways, but look at verse 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Verse 7, the one who does what is right is righteous. Verse 8, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil. These are family likenesses, family traits. Now, in my family, firstborn males are often slender, with high foreheads, straight thin hair when they have hair, and an ability to do maths. In these two families, into which the whole of humanity divides, John says there are two main family likenesses or family traits. There is righteousness and there is sin. But then the question comes, well, hang on, John, exactly what do you mean? Because back in chapter 1, you wrote some very reassuring words for Christians who find themselves still struggling with sin. John, you said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And you made it clear, John, here in in your letter, that the difference between walking in the light and walking in the darkness is not that those who walk in the light are free from sin but that those who walk in the light are honest about their sin. They confess their sin. They go to the Father through Jesus, their advocate, for full and free forgiveness. 
That's what those walking in the light do. It's not that they have no sin, it's that they're honest about it. And those walking in darkness just pretend that sin isn't a problem. But now, chapter 3, we read, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Can you see on the surface that sounds different from chapter 1? Now, these are hard verses, these verses 4 to 10. And it's okay to say that parts of the Bible are hard to understand. Peter says as much at the end of his second letter. He says Paul's letters contain things which are hard to understand and evil people twist and distort them. And if that's true of Paul's letters, it's certainly true of John's letters. But hard to understand doesn't mean impossible. It just means we need to concentrate. So you're happy to do some thinking and some digging for a moment as we try and work out what these verses mean. There are, there are a couple of options for what might be going on here that people have suggested. One is that John is distinguishing between occasional sin in chapter 1 and habitual sin in chapter 3. So, of course, the Christian will sin occasionally, chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Occasionally, the Christian will fall into sin. We must be honest about that. But chapter 3, the Christian won't sin habitually. And that's how you can tell who the genuine children of God are. They don't habitually do the same sin over and over. Now, how reassuring do you find that? Well, the question is, well, hang on a minute. How often can you sin occasionally before it becomes habitual? And if I take a step back and I'm honest about the reality of my life, even as a Christian who's seeking to trust Jesus, is it not true that the sins we really struggle with and the ones we're most aware of are precisely the habitual ones? The lack of patience, the lack of self-control, the temper, the lust, the coveting. Speaking personally, if it is true that the distinguishing mark of the genuine Christian is a lack of habitual sin, well, I had better consider whether I am, after all, a child of God. And perhaps you would say the same. Now, the translators in our version, the New International Version in front of us, seem to be steering us in that direction by using the translations go on sinning and keep on sinning in these verses. Now, that, those are reasonable translations in and of themselves. But the word underneath it is simply the word to sin, to do sin, it says literally. No one who lives in him sins. Verse 6. It isn't automatically a continuous, ongoing, habitual action that the author has in mind. It just says, no one who lives in them sins. That's how you tell the difference. They sin, they don't. So John is getting at something. He's saying the children of God simply do not sin, but the children of the devil too and do. And that's how you can tell the difference. So what then does it mean? Because we think, well, I do sin, so which am I? Is he then, this is another option, is he then getting at the inappropriateness of sin for the Christian child of God? You know, he's saying, look, guys, sin simply cannot be tolerated in the life of the Christian. Like having a snake in your bed. You know, it's not something you can be neutral towards, is it? A bed is no place for a snake. Yes, you know, technically a snake can find its way into your bed, not in the UK of course, although you do hear horror stories about snakes 
escaping from pet shops or whatever, nesting in a nearby house. Don't try, you know, try let that image dwell with you. But a snake in a bed is completely out of place. That's the point, isn't it? It's dangerous. It's deadly. You can't think, well, I'll deal with it in the morning. You need to deal with it right now. And some people have said, no, that's what these verses are saying. Sin is just completely out of place for the Christian. Now, that that, that is certainly true for the Christian. But again, is it what John is actually saying here? Because look at verse verse 10. He's saying, the way you tell the difference between the child of God and the child of the devil is the presence or absence of sin. It's not just the attitude to it. Saying, these are the guys and these aren't the guys. And sin is the difference. Now, as I say, these verses are difficult. Much ink has been spilt on them. But one further possibility is to look in John's first book, his gospel, to see how he uses the term sin there. Sometimes he uses the word sin to mean sin in general, as we normally use it. Remember, sin isn't just breaking the rules. Sin is a general attitude of rebellion against God, saying, I'm the boss, I'm in charge, I want to do things my way, not his way. And John does speak of sin in that general sense, but if we just flick back to that page 1083, very briefly, you'll need to keep a finger in, in, in 1 John as well, don't lose that. Page 1083, just look back at that. Verse 22 of chapter 15. This is Jesus talking about those who are opposing him. And he's saying, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. Now, hang on a minute. Can you hear what he's saying? He surely doesn't mean that the world was entirely innocent and never sinned before he came. Actually, that's precisely why he came, because of the sin of the world. But he's saying there is a particular sin they are now guilty of because they have rejected him. And that sin is deadly serious. Do you see? Do you see how he's using it there? If you you turn over the page to... um, to verse 8 in chapter 16. He says this. He says, When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment, in regard to sin because men do not believe in me. Can you see, he's using the word sin, but he has a particular sin in mind. And it's a very serious sin. It's the sin of rejecting Jesus. Rejecting the Son of God. Now, come back to to 1 John. Uh, I've lost it, let alone you guys. There we go. Page 1226. Can you see, uh, have a look at chapter 5, verse 16. So over the page. This strange verse that people often wonder what it means. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 16. It talks about a sin that leads to death. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray to God. I pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. Now, in the New Testament, generally, the sin that leads to death is simply rejecting the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Jesus calls it blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. 
It's the equivalent of being shipwrecked in the middle of the ocean and you're drowning and all is lost and the rescue helicopter comes along and the guy comes down on a rope to you and he holds out his hand and he says, all you need to do is grab on and you say, no thanks, I've got this. I'll do it myself. I don't want to be rescued. Or you're going to drown. All is lost. The the rescue was there. It's being offered to you and you're saying no. That is the sin that leads to death. That is the nature of the specific sin of rejecting Jesus. Do you see? You're rejecting the rescue. That's why it's so serious. And, and then in, in the, even in the passage itself, there's a clue towards this as well. So chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. And that sounds like a general description of sin, but actually lawlessness is not a widely used word in the New Testament, and its only other occurrence is where it's used by Paul in 2 Thessalonians to refer to the man of lawlessness, who's a figure a bit like the Antichrist that we saw John talking about a couple of weeks ago, the one who's against Christ. The man of lawlessness is against Christ. Further in the New Testament, there is talk of the law of Christ, which is to love one another. And so put this together, and it may well be that John has a particular type of sin in mind in these verses. That's the bottom line. If if none of the stuff we've just been talking about makes sense, this is where we're ending up. John has a particular sin in mind. It's not sin in general that he's talking about here. And that sin is the kind of sin that the genuine child of God will never do. And that sin is to depart from Christ. To be anti-Christ, to say, I don't need Christ, I can do it myself. To reject his law of love, that would be what the lawlessness is. Can you see then at the end of verse 10, that is where he ends up. Can you see that? Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. That's what the rest of the New Testament calls the law of Christ. So rather than contradicting what he said in chapter 1, which would be very strange for someone to do in a letter, he's clearly an incredibly intelligent and capable writer. He's not just going to say something that point blank is, is the opposite of what he said before. Actually, he seems to be saying something very similar to what he's been saying all along. Genuine Christian faith makes you a child of God. And genuine Christians stick with Jesus. They don't reject him. They don't move on to something else. They keep Jesus' commandment of loving their brothers and sisters. Not perfectly, as we saw before a couple of weeks ago, but you can see that love in their lives. That is how you tell the difference then between the child of God and the child of the devil. Genuine Christians stick with Jesus. Well, why make such a fuss then? Why does it matter so much? That's what we see uh, finally and very briefly. Thirdly, the one victor over sin, the sinless son of God. Verse 5, you know that he, that is Jesus, appeared that he might take away our sins and in him is no sin. Verse 8, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Do you know that phrase that people sometimes throw around to, to be on the wrong side of history? People talk about that often in the sort of contemporary debates that we face in our society at the moment. You know, don't find yourself on the wrong side of history on this issue, people say. John wants to say that to us. But what he thinks is the wrong side of history may not be the same as what the world thinks. 
See, the world is passing away, he says back in chapter 2, verse 17. That same world is the world that the Antichrist false teachers love despite what they say. And so he's saying, look, those guys who look so impressive, they've got this impressive teaching that's so tempting and it seems to offer you everything you want now. You don't have to wait, you don't have to travel, hopefully. You can just arrive here and now. No, they are children of the devil. The devil who has already been destroyed by the appearing of the Son of God as a sinless man in history. Can you see that? That's what he's saying here. That's why it's so foolish to go with them. Because we're now between, if you like, uh, D-Day and V-E Day, to speak in sort of World War II terms. The decisive battle has been won. The consequences of... Uh, the victory that has, the initial victory that has been won are now being played out until it is utterly plain for all to see. But for now, as we saw at the start in verse 2, what we will be has not yet been made known. So today we will struggle with sin in the general sense. Don't be surprised by that in ourselves. Don't be surprised in that, by that in others around us, in our, in our families, in our church family. But the genuine Christian will cling on to Christ, the sinless saviour. It's often when we're conscious of sin and failure that we are most vulnerable. We keep away from church and other Christians because we're ashamed. And we stop reading the Bible and praying because we think, how can God want anything to do with me in my compromised state? When we do that, we're doing the very opposite of what will actually help, which is to stick with Jesus. In him was no sin. And that is what makes him a fitting substitute for us. He died in our place. We can go to him when we despair of our sin. And when we identify with that sacrifice, we can know our sins to be cleansed once and for all. That was the experience of Charles Simeon. He was a powerful preacher in the late 18th, early 19th centuries. But before this, he was overwhelmed with guilt and weighed down with a heavy sense of sin. What could he do? Well, he wrote this, my distress of mind continued for about three months, or while it might have continued for years, since my sins were more in number than the hairs of my head. But he goes on, in Passion Week, as I was reading Bishop Wilson on the Lord's Supper, I met with an expression to this effect, that the Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sins to the head of their offering. So he's talking about the Day of Atonement in Leviticus. And so he goes, What? May I transfer all my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? Then, God willing, I will not bear them on my soul one moment longer. Accordingly, I sought to lay my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus. And a few days later, on Easter Sunday, I awoke early with these words upon my heart and lips. Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And from that hour, peace flowed in rich abundance into my soul. Do you know that peace? Do you know that joy? It comes only from laying your sin at the foot of the cross where our sinless Saviour died. 
in the face of the reality of sin in our lives, we will be tempted to shortcuts. We will be tempted to believe that it ought not to be like this, that we must be doing something wrong. Instead, we must be people who simply stick with Jesus and keep trusting his death day by day. That is what children of God look like. It's not arrogant to claim to be a child of God if you are trusting in Jesus. It is the position of one who has accepted that rescue and has been rescued and given a totally undeserved fresh start. Don't then be deceived by quick fix solutions that offer something that is not Jesus. Stick with him and then we will keep travelling, hopefully, but even better, one day we will arrive. Let's pray.